Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. I felt like I, and I did, I knew two from Cameron Giovanelli's. So I knew on, you know, Wednesday and Sunday, he gets up, he preaches. And at that time, I wanted to be a pastor's wife. So, like, I had always thought, you know, my first kiss was going to be at the altar, and you stay pure until you're married, and I had a purity ring, and, you know, every service, I'm going to the altar, I'm singing in groups, I'm playing the piano for the services, like, I I got the Christian Character Award out of the whole school, like, I was, from the outside looking in, like, the ideal little Christian kid, and then I see this other world where when we're not in church... I'm getting text messages, like explicit text messages, like the words that he would use for the things that he wanted to do, like vulgar language. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent, fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm really excited to finally have Sarah on the show. Um, and actually, it was Sarah's story that prompted um, this podcast existing. Um, this was the story that kind of pushed me after six or seven years of pushing this idea around to actually move forward and start really calling this stuff out. And uh, yeah, I just, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Can you just introduce yourself to my audience and let them know a little bit about you? Yes. So thanks for having me on. Um, My name is Sarah Jackson. I am married. I have um, two kids. I just moved to Pennsylvania. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of boring. There's nothing really interesting, but that's, that's basically me in a nutshell, wife and mother. That's cool. There's nothing boring about that. It keeps you super, super busy. <laughs> I know because my last interview, Very. my daughter was like screaming up and down the stairs. So, <laughs> so I guess it can be <laughs> yeah, I get that. pretty exciting. But um, yeah, I, I guess walk us back just to um, like early childhood, like introduction to the IFB movement and kind of 
what your first experience in that world was. Okay. So, um, the first church that I ever remember going to was Calvary Baptist in Dundalk, Maryland. Um, my parents actually met there, um, on a blind date, like through people, like the blind date wasn't at church, but like met, (laughs) (laughs) I think my mom met my aunt there or something. I don't know. Um, but they ended up meeting through there and then like growing up until maybe like six or so, I don't think we went to church because they kind of got out of it after getting together. Um, and then my mom is a nurse and we would stay at my grandparents' house on the weekends because she was night shift and my dad um, was working full time and stuff. So I guess to like give him a break. Um, so we would stay with my grandparents on the weekends and they were very active at Calvary. My grandfather was a deacon. My grandmother was a teacher. They were the teen directors at the time. Um, So I want to say like around six till probably 10, we would go there every weekend. Um, So I grew up there. And at that time it was, the pastor was um, Dr. Caldwell. So this was before Cameron Giovanelli was there. Um, And then he ended up getting dementia, I think. Um, so he stepped down, his son took over for a little bit and then they, they left, but I'm jumping ahead. So we went there with my grandparents till about 10. Um, and then my parents started getting back into church and we live in a different County. It's like 35 minutes from Calvary. So they tested out this IFB, church up by us. It was real small. I don't know, maybe like 30 people, um, which is a little different than Calvary. Calvary probably had like 200 at the time. Right. Um, and it never really felt like home just because home was Calvary. Cause that's all I had known as a kid. Um, and we only lasted there like two years. And then they said like, we're just going to make the drive. It's worth it. That's where they had first been introduced to IFB neither one of them were raised IFB. I'm not entirely sure how they got into it. I don't think I've ever really asked. Um, But that was kind of where it started. And I want to say we went to Calvary as a family with my parents. I was probably 13. Hmm. Um, And that's when we started going down there. Um, And at the time, elementary and sixth and seventh grade, I went to public school and okay. then I remember it being like this, this big thing, like it'd be so cool to go to the Christian school. Right. Um, and this was still when the Caldwells were there. So my grandfather actually became the principal. It was called Baptist Christian School at the time. Um, and we finally convinced my parents to let us go there. So eighth grade, I started at the Christian school. So that was kind mm-hmm. of my introduction to it. So it was an exciting thing for you at the time. It was a please let me go kind of mood in the beginning. Kind of because when we were in public school, I remember being so awkward and embarrassed because we, of course, were, my family was following the IFB rules, but I was in a normal school. So these kids are like making fun of me because I have my long skirts on and my high shirts and, you know, they would talk about movies and I had no idea. Like I, we didn't watch secular movies. Um, or like, I remember in seventh grade, 
there was a field trip to go see one of the Harry Potter movies. Like they actually took everyone to the movie theater. And I was the only one out of like 400 kids that had to sit behind and work in the library because you don't go to the movies, especially like Harry Potter. Right. Um, so I remember that being really awkward. I was always like super embarrassed with the whole skirts thing. And I don't know. So I craved normalcy to me. So I craved being around people that were going to be like me. Um, so, at the, so I think it was either let's not go to church so I can be normal with these people that I'm friends with now or I'd rather go to the Christian school so I feel like I fit in because I was definitely an outcast. So would you say that your first experience then with the school was pretty positive as far as that shift happening and feeling a little bit more like you got rid of that rift between your normal life and church life? It just kind of all became yeah. one, right? Yeah, I feel like everything kind of um, meshed together better. Um mm-hmm. It was more, my life was more uniform, I guess. Um, And that was, so eighth grade, it was still called Baptist Christian. And then I think that was the year that the Caldwells were leaving. Um, They kind of, the sun kind of got up in one service and said, after this, I'm out and left. Like nobody knew that that was, and everybody was just like shook because they had been there for 30 years. Um. So the school shut down my ninth grade year and I was homeschooled. So I did those awful videos from Pensacola. Was it like a Becca or something? Oh my goodness. That was awful. So basically I would sit in front of a computer and watch a classroom. What does the word or the abbreviation in front of a co-function CO, what does that stand for? Powell? Remember? Forgot. Lost the word there. Rebecca, help him out. Students watching before she says it, what is co an abbreviation for? Do you remember? So that was that was bad. Um, and then 10th grade, sometime in ninth grade, I think is when Cameron came. Um, and then he reopened the school in my 10th grade year. So that's when things like completely shifted because the Caldwells were very old fashioned IFB, like you know, the original hymns and very monotone. Um, So when Cameron came in, it was almost like a breath of fresh air for everyone because he's very charismatic and enthusiastic and he was young and he just brought a different feel into the church. So I was definitely excited for the school in 10th grade because it just, I don't know, it was more young and exciting, I guess, less stuffy feeling. So 10th grade, I was, I was pretty excited that they were opening up again on top of the fact that homeschooling was just miserable. So I wanted to get back in school. Right. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's something I heard about Cameron, um, Giovanelli, like that there was something, I mean, obviously very charismatic, um, Mm -hmm. and very well liked by people who were around him. And, uh, I was talking to someone who was very close to like the kind of golden state North Valley kind of circle. And they talked about that. Like he was one of the few that, you know, could kind of in a way put Treber in his place and like do things that were, would not be okay otherwise with music or do things with the college that weren't, but he was good at what he did. And so he was able to get by because 
I mean, hey, he could build up the uh, attendance. He could build up the the church right. enrollment, the school and en- church enrollment, the school enrollment. And uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's. I think that's important for people to know before we get to the rest of the story. I think it's important. People who do this kind of stuff are usually that person. They're likable, charismatic. Yes. They're the cool new person that everybody wants right. to be around. What was your kind of initial interactions with him when he came? Was there like a period in which he was just like, oh, the distant pastor or did he become close to your family like very quickly when he, when he first came there? He became close pretty immediately because my grandmother was his secretary. So she was the secretary when the Caldwells were there. So she, she was his secretary or the church general church secretary. Both, I guess it was really just like one position. Got it. Um, So they had a financial secretary um, so the way their the offices were set up, it was like one long office with two dividing walls. So it made, it's like you would walk into the middle office, which was my grandmother's. And if you walk to the right, it was Cameron's office. And if you walk to the left, it was the financial office. But when you have the doors open, it was all like one big room. So they could be separated, but, um, so my grandmother was kind of like the main secretary for him and the church. She did like all the all the letters, all the, all the everything answering the phones. So I feel like we got close to him pretty quickly because they kind of took him in, in the aspect, I mean, he didn't have family here at the time. Um, so my parents even say like, they almost felt like another set of parents to him because when he came here, he was 24, 25, like straight out of college. Like he had like one job in between, so really young. And my older sister was 20. So not that different in age. So they kind of like almost took him under their wing. And then my grandparents did as well. Um, so we did a lot with them. I wasn't personally super close to him at first. I mean, close because of our family, but um, it was towards it actually may have been the beginning of 10th grade that I started babysitting. And at that time he only had his oldest daughter. Um, and I think it was my 10th grade year that they had the second one, but timeline is kind of off. I don't know. Um, but in a personal way, I wasn't super close, but definitely again, the feeling was so different than the Caldwell's because I don't know that I ever spoke five words to the Caldwells because they were like just kind of like untouchable. Like they come in, they preach, they leave. There wasn't like mingling and hanging out or whatever, where Cameron was always in the midst of everyone and talking to everyone. So closer than the Caldwells, but not, not weird yet. Right. If that makes sense. Right. So, um, so you mentioned around 10th grade starting to babysit. That was kind of when you started actually communicating in some regard. Um, and I guess, I mean, we already kind of covered this with him being charismatic, but did anybody in the church, like even people who had left, did anybody experience any kind of like weird feeling or express any kind of concern at that point that you're aware of about just Not him as a person? Or? Okay. I think the only thing that rubbed some people wrong is the congregation was a much older crowd at the time because the Caldwells were very older. I think Dr. Caldwell was already in his seventies. So to then have a 25 year old kid basically to these people come in, I think that was 
an adjustment for the older crowd because I mean that could be their grandchild and I think that was I think that was the worst of it was you know people don't like change and like some people do obviously like there were some things that was a breath of fresh air but then you have the other ones who are I've been here for 30 years and that's not Mm -hmm. how we do it we because Cameron brought in you know the hymn books from North Valley and so they switched that out and then he renovated the whole auditorium. So there was just a lot of change at once. So I think if anything rubbed people the wrong way, maybe that just because it was getting used to change. But as a person, I mean, if you knew him, he's just, he is a very likable person. He, you'll, you feel like you've known him forever because he's just that loud, happy, laid back. I mean, like for the most part, pretty laid back, but he just, had one of those personalities that you're kind of like drawn to. So I don't think that anybody really disliked him or there were no red flags in the beginning. Um, as far as I know. Right. So, um, tell me about how that kind of relationship changed as you began like babysitting and like, I mean, I know your family was close in proximity, but you weren't directly communicating, um, up until that point. So how did your relationship to him change? And did you feel like a closeness or like a, like a, I guess a trust very early on when you started doing that stuff? 10th and 11th grade, I feel like was very normal pastor teen relationship. It wasn't, there was no red flags for me. It wasn't awkward. Most of my communication was always through Sarah because most of the times that I was babysitting was either when, you know, Sarah had teacher meetings or maybe they were going out on soul winning or their date nights and stuff. But the, the first two years, 10th and 11th of watching their kids was very normal. Um, and then there was a switch that flipped my 12th grade year. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know what it was, but I remember the first time that he texted me on a personal level through me. So I don't remember ever being like close to just him before that. Cause I remember a weird feeling of like, well, this was kind of odd, but it was the first week of my senior year. We took a field trip to the aquarium in Baltimore And I was super sick. I had like an upper respiratory infection or something. And I remember just like sitting on the steps and just not wanting to be there, but it's the first week of school. So you don't miss it. Um, And it was that night that my phone went off and I obviously had this number saved because of babysitting and stuff like emergencies, whatever. And I'm sure there were times that we may have just discussed times or something, but it was never, there was never any lines crossed. And he sent me a text saying, how are you feeling sicky? And I remember thinking like, this is, this is weird. We've never, so I thought, well, maybe he's going to get to something. Maybe he's going to ask me to babysit or something. And I, that was the first conversation that was like on a personal level. And we were talking back and forth. And I want to say that night we talked for like an hour, just for like random tech. Like he would just ask like random questions and stuff. And then that's when that whole switch was flipped. And then the text started being more frequent at random times, like usually in the evenings or late at night. And I remember there was multiple times that he would ask like, well, who are you around? Like, what are you doing? Trying to feel out what my situation was on the other side. And while I felt like it was weird at first, I also like, I don't know. I I don't remember ever 
you know, not answering him or pushing him away because to me, well, it's the pastor talking to you. Like, it's not, I wasn't thinking at first, like, oh, he's got a crush on me or, oh, he's like trying to flirt with me. So while we were talking on a personal level, and to me, that was kind of weird. And I remember like always hiding my phone. It, in the beginning, even though we were talking often at this point, it still hadn't turned sexual or I get like looking back now as an adult, it was definitely flirty and he was trying to feel out a situation and see how far he could push me. And um, I remember the first weird question that kind of threw me was him asking if I had kissed someone yet. And I, and we, I mean, we had talked about some things and I obviously said no. And that's when he started telling me like situations about him to make me, I guess, like to warm me up and part of the grooming you know, making me feel like, well, if I can trust you with this secret, then you need to keep my secret. So he, that's when he told me that he had actually kissed someone in high school and that everybody thought that his first kiss was at his wedding, but it really wasn't. And that he got away with it and all this stuff. So not to be embarrassed if I did kiss someone and I could tell him. So it was like, I don't know, just looking back, just makes me angry. Like seeing the grooming process from the outside and from an older version of yourself, it just makes you mad. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of those things. And I just had Rachel and peach on, we talked about that. Like there's, there's so many things where as a, as a teenager, I mean, you just, one, you can't be expected to know (laughs) that this Mm -hmm. is the case. I mean, I think kids need to be taught to recognize some of that stuff, but you know, I, it is strange looking at it with perspective and understanding and research. Now I'm sure you've done lots of research on all of this stuff. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's very um, shocking to look at how clear the red flags are in retrospect, but not in the time, you know, especially in that culture where, like you said, he's the pastor. So like by default, you just assume he's not doing the wrong thing. He's probably doing something for the spiritual good of himself and others, you know, And, um, so you did mention like hiding your phone so people wouldn't see. So like Mm -hmm. you felt enough weird about it where like, did you think your parents would react in a weird way? Or did you think, were you like worried that someone would misinterpret what he's doing, even though you didn't think he was doing something wrong or what was motivating that? Um, so the one time that I remember really hiding my phone and the first time that it really stood out that he asked me what I was doing, I was black Friday shopping with my mom. And I remember we were in Sears in the mall, the local mall, and we were walking around and I remember him asking like, what are you doing? Who's around you? And I said that I was shopping with my mom and he's like, well, who do they think that you're talking to? And I remember that that was like the first, like, or maybe they shouldn't know that I'm talking to him. So I, I think that was kind of like where I like subconsciously started hiding it because it almost kind of like threw me like, well, maybe I shouldn't say anything because I, I didn't want him to feel like, well, people are going to look at him weird. Like I was almost like I was trying to protect him. Like, well, maybe, you know, he's not flirting. He's not, he's just being friendly. He's just the pastor, but maybe, you know, they'll take it the wrong way or something. So that was the first time that I really remember hiding. And then the closer that we got, and then of course, once things started, you know, getting physical and stuff at that point, he had gotten me a phone on the church plan. So that one was always hidden. Um, so I had one on my parents' plan, but he started getting worried that they were going to see his number all the time because at that time 
I mean, we're back in 07, your cell phone bill came printed every incoming text, outgoing text, like the numbers from to, so it wasn't just like an all paperless thing. And he was worried that they were going to start seeing his number. This is your senior year and which, which means this was a relatively short process from him initiating a conversation to it becoming physical. What, what was the length of time from him asking the first, like clearly out of bounds question to him actually trying to make a move and, and take action on this? Looking back super fast. So in the time, you know, you're a kid, everything feels like it's dragging. You just want to be older and like you're longing to get out of the house and go to college. So every, like my senior year, I feel like at the time dragged, but now looking back. So the field trip was like the first week of September. And then uh, Black Friday is when I remember like, you know, starting to like hide things. And then sometime between Black Friday and Christmas, he started talking about how he'd really like to be my first kiss and he'd really like to feel my lips and, you know, just like throwing things in there. And then he had my family come over to his house on Christmas. Um, and which, you know, wasn't normal. We didn't really, hold on, I'm trying to get out of this. This thing just popped up on my computer. <laughs> um, Okay. Sorry. My email like took over my whole computer. Um, so sometime between, um, black Friday and Christmas, things started to progress. That's when he started like talking about physical things. Um, and he just kept talking about like how he wanted to kiss me. He wanted to kiss me. And then he had us over for Christmas. I was, I want to say it was, um, Christmas night for like a game night with his family, And that was the first time that my immediate family hung out at his house. Um, Normally it was, you know, going to the local diner after a service or something with them. Um, So I remember we went over there and I remember him having me in like, so when you first walked in his house to the right was like this little sitting room and there was like two high back fancy chairs. Like they never really actually used that area. But that night they had some games set up. So he had me play connect four with them. Like that just shows like how childish, whatever. Um, so there was that. And then, then we were on Christmas break and he was just like really hounding how he wanted to kiss me. And the first day back from Christmas break was January 3rd and which ended up being that date ended up being like our code word for, is it safe to talk like text or whatever? Um, And then once it got physical that first day, that's when he got me the phone because then conversations really started to, like we started talking all the time. Um, But I would say between, like it was talking and it was definitely inappropriate looking back before Black Friday, but I would say between Black Friday and the new year is when things like zero to 60. So about a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And, and so he was physical for the first time on the third and then the phone was like immediately after that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He went to Verizon and opened up a plan and it was like this dumb little black flip phone, like nothing fancy. Um, and that was what he had me use to text him from there on out. Did anybody know? I'm, I'm assuming not that phone or nobody saw that phone ever. No, he, he had so much control 
over things that I personally think in any given church or company or anything, there should be so many like checks and balances that there weren't there. And because yeah. he opened nobody it on the had access line, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the, the church phone number, all the church cell phones had the first six numbers all the same. And then the last four would be different. So like it even had the first six that were right along with all the church ones. And it was just like the audacity, I guess, like, how are you not freaking out that you would get caught? Like, what about if somebody does ask you and then if they were to pull that bill, which I mean, I guess then this kind of thing wasn't talked about as much. I don't, I mean, maybe because I was young and I don't know about it, but I feel like this wasn't as much of an open topic So I feel like pastors weren't really being questioned as much. So because it would have been a massive red flag, like, okay, so whose phone is this? And why is the only number it communicates with your office line and your cell phone? So it, it would have been a huge red flag, but nobody would look into stuff. With, With how quick this was. And I know he was young. He was 30 around this time. Or twenty eight ish thirty because he okay. no. So he was. I want to say he was born in like seventy two, and this was oh seven. So thirty five. Was that oh, right? okay? I don't know. Somewhere around there. So he must have been a little old, a little older when he came. Then. Interesting. Maybe 30 when he came, 35. No, sorry, I am wrong. He is 11 years older than me. So if I was 16, it started when he was 27. Okay. So it was 27, 28. Okay. And you were 16 years senior year? Yeah. The beginning of my senior year, I was 16. And then by the time I got physical, I was 17. But I graduated at 17. Got it. Okay. So... With how quick he set everything up and with how, you know, code words and phone plans and did you get an, I mean, maybe not in the time, but do you have an inkling that that wasn't his first time ever doing something like that? Because it seems like he had it fairly planned out as far as what he was trying to do. I, that because I know that kind of right. <laughs> poses some things, but I, um, I truly think that, and I could be so wrong, and maybe this is just me being naive. I truly do think that I was the first because, and I mean, I've been wrong before because I also thought I was his only, but Mm. I feel like a lot, even though looking back, like he was so calculated and manipulative, but I also feel like he was also so nervous all the time. And I feel like if you've done it before, like the level of nervousness in, and maybe it was, maybe I was just his first minor and maybe that's why there was some nervousness. But like, I remember the first time that we did kiss and the level of nervousness, even on both ends was, I mean, it was intense. So like how nervous we were, I don't know. Maybe that was just like the adrenaline rush of it. So I could be wrong, but I didn't get the feeling at the time, even now looking back, there's no like super red flags that there was someone else. I do think 
that right after we stopped, like we cut off all physical, like when I first went to Golden State after my senior year, I do have speculation that there was more things going on in the church, like other women. Um, but no other minors have come forward. Right. So I don't know. So go, I mean, obviously going from just talking to physical contact is a big jump. Um, and what was your response the first time that he like actually tried to kiss you? Like, did you feel this sense of like, what are you doing? Or was it something where you're frozen by that? Like uh, at w- what was the emotion going through your head at that time? Terrified if I had to pick one word. So I, I definitely was, you know, at this point had been groomed into thinking like, Oh, he really does care for me. He really does like me. Um, he had started texting like I L asterisk V E U. And like, so he, like, we can't figure that out. Like if somebody were to pick up your phone, they're not going to see like an asterisk taking away the O in love and whatever. Um, but like, I guess like to feel me out to see if I would reciprocate, um, so he had already started telling me that he loved me and that he wishes that he had like things would have been different and he would have met me 11 years ago before getting married or however many years that had been at that point for him. And not like if the age difference was not the same, like he wasn't saying he wishes he met me when I was five, but, um, so I, um, I remember, so when he first started saying that he wanted to kiss me and stuff, then he started talking about like where he would do it. And he had this, so he had his main office, which was in that three group. And then up behind the baptistry on, so if you're looking at the baptistry at Calvary behind the walls, there are two offices. Um, so like you have your baptistry changing areas and then there's like steps that go up and on the other side of that, there was like a storage closet. And then he had what he called his prayer study. Um, and then at one point I remember they needed another spot for another Sunday school class. So they ended up putting like chairs in there and having a Sunday school class in there. But that's where he had said he wanted me to meet him because my second hour of my senior year because I had been homeschooled in ninth grade, I already had one of the classes that my grade was doing. So I had a free hour. So I was his office aide that hour. So every day I'm spending at least an hour with him on top of texting outside of school and church. Um, And he started having me like in his singing groups and playing the piano for him. Like Christmas, he sang Mary, did you know? And he had me play that for him. And then he was, for a couple months, he was pastoring another church and would have me come play the piano there for him. He would do like a service there before Calvary's service. So it wasn't just texting in those couple months leading up to the physical. It was a lot of time spent together. Um, So he, when he was talking about, when he got me to agree that, yes, I would spend time with him in the study Like I didn't via text say like, yes, I'll kiss you. But I guess it was like kind of understood, like let's go up there and feel it out. I don't know. And it was during my office aid hour, that second hour. And he kind of like nudged, like motioned for me to go up to that study. And then he said audibly like, Hey Sarah, can you take 
this to the kitchen or something. I don't remember what the fake errand was he asked me. So that way I would leave because I'm in the office with my grandmother. So I'm like helping everyone in the office. So my grandmother's sitting right there. And so I fake acted like I was going to go run the errand and then went up the steps to that study. And, and a couple minutes later, he followed. And I remember he said at first, like, let me just hug you and just hold you for a minute with nobody around. And I remember like my whole body shaking because it was like this nervousness, adrenaline that I hadn't felt before. And like, you know, in your head, like you're not an idiot, you know, like this isn't right. If nothing else, he's married. So I don't want to say like, I was completely dumb to the fact that it was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I was so manipulated and groomed at that point. And I think what outside people don't really understand, like, unless you've really been in IFB or something similar, you can be like, there is a huge difference between an IFB 16 year old and a 16 year old who's never yeah. stepped foot in a church, who's raised by an alcoholic or druggy parents, or, I mean, my grandmother had a baby at 16. Like that just shows the difference in like mentally I was not 16 because I had been so sheltered my whole life. So, and like even being in public school, like I said, like I was always the outcast because I was so sheltered. I didn't right. listen to the music or watch the movies. Um, so I had never even seen a sexual scene in a movie. Like you always turned it off or I remember they had those, um, sorry, I'm like so off topic. Those boxes, that would like even bleep out all the curse words oh, yeah, yeah. in movies. At least have one of those. <laughs> yeah. So what they call it like a cuss box or something. Um, so I was so insanely sheltered that I was an easy target. And my senior year, I think I was so anxious to grow up and be out of my house. There was a lot of fighting between me and my parents because they were still trying to treat me like a kid. And in my mind, I'm being treated like an adult by this man right. and being made to feel important. And like, I am a grown woman when I'm not. So it was like this struggle between being so angry at my parents for trying to make me a kid and wanting to be an adult for him. And I think he almost like fed off of that arguing because he would counsel my parents on their relationship with me or he would counsel me on my relationship with my parents but then we'd leave the meeting and I'm getting text messages from him. So like, hmm. it was just a huge mind blow. So I remember being nervous and terrified because I knew it was wrong. But at the same time, at the time I was okay with it. Like I never want people to get the wrong impression. Like I feel like most of the time when you hear about sexual abuse, you think that there's like this forceful right. um, and there are those, like I'm not saying they're not, but mine wasn't that mine. He never forced himself. Um, it was consensual, but it shouldn't have been consensual because it was a child. Um, right. And he, he knew that he was the adult in the situation. Well, it's, it's kind of that thing of, you know, when we talk about, you know, sexual assault, you know, there's the key is there's always a power dynamic. And I think what we always default to is power dynamic means it's a six foot four, you know, 250 pound guy, right. you know, with a, you know, five foot girl that can't defend herself, but right. that's such a limited that's that's the most rare form of that you know right. the the common form is he holds a 
top position in a company where he's a boss where he's a i mean the the highest position that you can have is to be clergy because right. people are going to trust you and when you do something wrong i think it's starting to change because people are seeing how this has been abused but i think if something is done that's wrong people give the benefit of the doubt oh they're stressed oh they're you know they're caring for an entire right. church oh they're doing this all the things that we shouldn't do, that we shouldn't make those excuses for them. Um, I, I am curious because, you know, with some of these cases that do involve the church, there is a spiritual aspect as well, where there's a, a manipulation from the side of the abuser to say, um, hey, I think God wants us to do this. Or, or you know, because I'm the pastor, God's, you know, Jack Scott's a perfect example, you know, show right. God's love to me through you. Um, was there ever a spiritual side to this or did he keep it very categorized where it was like, here's our spiritual thing where we do this. And then there's this side personality that comes out with you. It was two separate worlds. He never brought anything like he never used that as a manipulation or um, a way to get me to do anything. I felt like I, and I did, I knew two from Cameron Giovanelli's. So I knew on, you know, Wednesday and Sunday, he gets up, he preaches. And at that time I wanted to be a pastor's wife. So like I had always thought, you know, my first kiss is going to be at the altar and you stay pure until you're married. And I had a purity ring and, you know, every service I'm going to the altar, I'm singing in groups, I'm playing the piano for the services. Like I, I got the Christian character award out of the whole school. Like I was from the outside looking in like the ideal little Christian kid. And then I see this other world where when we're not in church, I'm getting text messages, like explicit text messages, like the words that he would use for the things that he wanted to do, like vulgar language. So I almost felt like, and I still kind of feel this way that he's like trapped in this life that he doesn't really want to be a part of. It's like, this is what he grew up knowing. And at least at the time, I felt like he so badly wanted just to be normal and like out in the world. But this life was so easy for him because of his personality. It was, I mean, he, it's not work at that point because it's your personality and you're, you're good at what you do. So you know, he didn't, he didn't want to be in the world, but he did like, he would, he'd cuss more than I cuss now being out of church. So I saw two very different sides of him. Um, and I am glad like now, you know, talking to other survivors and seeing how it can be twisted. I think that would have almost, I don't know, like almost made finding God now worse because that's also thrown in there. So I'm grateful that he didn't use that as one of his tactics, but it was a very confusing thing for me to differentiate all these different parts of my life. And I can be this person with him. I have to be this person with my parents. I have to be this person in church. So it was, it was hard. What was your relationship with, like with his wife at that time? Was it, did it stay pretty consistently like just 
amicable? Did you, did you feel like that relationship was strained at all? Did you avoid her? Like what was kind of that relationship during that time? It was very weird. So the first time that he, the first day that we kissed, so our first kiss was during my office aid hour. And then I remember after lunch, I had English with his wife. She was our English teacher. And he comes in the room and asks to see me down at the office to go over one of my paces. So I had to, even though I had that free hour, I still had like to have another credit or something. Um, so he said that he needed to go over it cause he was the one who would oversee that since it was self paced and he pulled me out of her class and we get into the hallway and he said, I thought we could maybe try again. And so he took me back to the study and kissed me again. So I think at that point it was, I don't want to say that I was almost like numb to the fact that she was his wife, but I mean, there was obviously that, that level of like jealousy maybe as a kid, like that I couldn't be the adult that was with him outside of this relationship that we had. But I also was close to her and asked, like, I'd go shopping with her. She'd take me to lunch. Like, I remember her taking me down to the Inner Harbor of Baltimore and taking me shopping and took me to Cheesecake Factory. So, like, I hung out with her outside of him. Um, But he, I remember one of the first things that he told me was, the best way to hide something is to keep it out in the open. So when he got me um, a Christmas present, it was he had gone into Macy's and was smelling perfumes because I didn't have any perfume and he found one that he liked, but I obviously didn't have a job or income outside of babysitting his kids. So he said that he got, he would get me a gift card and have his wife give it to me as a babysitting Christmas present. And it was for the exact, well, close to, it was enough to cover the perfume. So for me to go then to Macy's and get that perfume to wear for him. So like he put her in the middle of us and like almost used her as a pawn. And then for Valentine's day, he, all I had was stud earrings and he doesn't like studs. So he had asked me like if I had any hoop earrings and I said, no, again, no income. I'm a high schooler. Um, so he, got these earrings and left the receipt out. He either left the earrings out or the receipt out and told me that she found it. And when she asked what it was, because it was for Valentine's day, he said that he had taken that back and got her something else. He didn't take it back. It was my Valentine's day present, but for when he would purposely leave little things out. So she wouldn't question further than that because she thinks that he's always this open book. So he was very, calculated with things that he did. So I think I almost stayed close to her as part of that, you know, the best way to hide something is to leave it out in the open. So stay close to her. Don't act like I'm closer to him than her. How much did the relationship really change up until graduation? Cause you said graduation was kind of the cutoff of this relationship because you went off to college. Um, like did this, just keep maintaining pace and then suddenly stop because of necessity because you were moving. Was it something where he was so scared of being found out? Like what kind of led to this, like, Hey, let's cut off ties from this. Like, let's stop this. So after that first kiss that turned into pretty much an every single day thing, unless he was out doing hospital visits or 
you know, out playing golf or whatever. That was an everyday thing that we would meet up in that study. Um, and looking back, that's another thing. Like, how is that not a red flag? Every single day, Sarah and Cameron are missing at some point. I guess people just didn't put two and two together because he's always in and out of the office and upstairs and downstairs. So, but to me, looking back, it's like I'm screaming at these people now at 31 years old. Like, how did you not see this? But I, I get it. Um, but it started like really progressing. The more time that we spent up in that study, the further things got sexually and he would want to teach me things. And there was things that his wife wouldn't do with him. So he wanted to experience those with me. Um, and so things got further and further. And then it got to the point where the last thing was my virginity. And he kept saying that he wanted, you know, to, for me to give that to him. He wanted me to, or him to be the one that I share that with. And I kept kind of like pushing that off. And I mean, it had got to the point where like, it was literally all but that, like I had met him at my grandparents' house one day. He had me leave school saying, cause I had terrible migraines my senior year and my grandparents lived five minutes from the school, but my parents and I lived that 35 minutes away so if I was sick, I would just go over to my grandparents' house and like sleep it off. Um, so he had me leave one day saying that I had a migraine and then he came over to their house. He was my grandparents' boss. So he controls where they are, what they're doing. Right. So he obviously kept them busy so they wouldn't be at their house. And we spent like three hours in the basement on a couch together. Um, and just looking back at like how close things got, like I'm so grateful that I never gave that last part to him. Cause I feel like that was now as an adult, that's been some of my healing is I feel like you didn't get everything. Um, but it was definitely progressing really fast. And then we had a spirit week and I want to say like the end of April, I'd have to look in my yearbook for like the exact dates, but the one day was fifties day. So everyone's dressed up like fifties, you know, people in the fifties and stuff. And he wanted to go through with that same plan. And I finally said, okay, fine. I'll sleep with you. Cause in my mind, I've put it off long enough. Cause again, like it feels like so much longer than it actually was. Right. And I'd given him everything else. Um, so since the plan worked the last time we were going to do the same thing, meet at my grandparents' house. Um, and so he told me like what to wear, where to be, what time he would be there. So I left again, went to my grandparents' house. And I was sitting on the bed in their spare room and my phone went off. That was my Cameron phone from the church plan that only he has the number to. So I knew it was him. And he said, Dave followed me, follow my lead, which was the youth pastor at the time. And Dave and Cameron were best friends. They did everything together. Um, so they were always super close. Um, and apparently now I've heard that Sarah's mom, who was our school secretary, was starting to suspect things and thinking it's weird that I was always around him. I was always in his office. And apparently she had talked to Dave a couple times saying that I was too flirty with her son-in-law because of course it's on me right. as the female child. Um, so she, that, that day noticed that again, I left school and now she couldn't find Cameron. So she went to Dave and told him 
go find Cameron before he ruins his life. And so Dave followed him. And so I get that text message and I'm like, holy crap, like what's going on? I remember shaking, like we just got found out. And he had always been every, um, you know, preacher that would get found out. Like, I feel like that's when things were starting to pop up with people, you know, like this kind of thing coming out. And he was telling me another one got caught. Another one got caught. Like, you have to promise me that you're not going to say anything. We take this to the grave because I'll lose everything. I'll lose my family. I'll lose my kids. I'll lose my ministry. So there was always this like super, super heavy like guilt to keep his secret. And really for both of us, because at that time I didn't want it to end. So you just kept quiet. So I was like, oh my goodness, like how much does Dave know? So no sooner the doorbell rings. So I go downstairs and I open the door and the look on Dave's face, like I'll never forget it. He was white as a ghost. He was sweating. He's looking down at the ground. And I was close to Dave because I've known Dave my entire life because he grew up in that church as a teen. I was very close to his dad. Um, He wouldn't even look at me. They both walk in and um, Dave said, what's going on here? And Cameron said something like, nothing's going on. I was like, yeah, nothing's going on. And apparently Cameron had told him that because Sarah's mom had been suspicious that I, because I was flirty, he was coming to let me know that I needed to back off because I was making his mother-in-law uncomfortable, which wasn't the case. So Dave said, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but whatever it is, it needs to stop. And it needs to stop right now. And so we both said, okay. And like agreed. And he said, you know, there's going to be some changes. You guys need to keep your distance, whatever. And so we just, you know, yep. Not in your heads. We'll do whatever you want. Because at this point, like, we don't know how much, you know, we're just going to agree with you and tell you whatever you want to hear. So I remember being devastated embarrassed, upset, like all the emotions I wanted to vomit. So they leave. And I think what hurt the most at that time is Cameron, like cut me off because now he's trying to save himself. So he had sent me a text uh, and it was like, it was a Wednesday. Cause I remember going back to the church cause we had church that night and sitting in my grandmother's office and like my eyes are puffy. Cause I had been crying And Dave, I remember he walked out of Cameron's office with Cameron and said, what's wrong with you? Looks like you lost your best friend. Like, that's like a snicker. So I do think that he knew more. Now talking to him, he said that Cameron admitted to kissing me, but said that's as far as we went. Well, even to me now, like, you're my youth pastor. Why didn't you protect me? You knew that he was kissing me as a child. Where were you? Um, But that's a whole nother story. And I remember just like crying even more and like, get myself together, get myself together. And so Cameron texted me and said, sorry, but I need the phone back. So I went into the girl's bathroom and I deleted everything off the phone and I put it in his desk. And I just was, I don't know, like I felt like I had just lost my whole world. Like I had just given this man virtually everything. And now you're just cutting me off. That's it. And where do I go from here? Now I don't have all that to give to what I like do with it. What I wanted, you know, be pure until marriage and save that kiss for my wedding. And I felt dirty and disgusting. So like I'm left here dirty 
and you get to go back to your wife and your life and your church credit card and do whatever you want. And I just felt very alone and things had stopped after that for a couple weeks. And then he started texting me again on my other phone and slowly like, how are you doing? Just checking in and like slowly weaseling back in. And then it ended up turning physical again. Um, we met, there's a, this is disgusting, but there's a graveyard up on a hill behind the church, like across the main road. And he used to say that he would go to the top of the hill to pray over Dundalk and he had me meet him there. So no one would follow him and no, cause people think that that's where he's praying. Um, and that was the first time that I met up with him again after everything, but he would meet me all kinds of places, you know, behind the grocery store or, um, at the cemetery, like wherever he could get away and I could meet him. That's like, it, it was no longer in the church. Now we are finding places outside of, cause at this point now I have my license. So I'm just going wherever he beckons. Um, and then once I left for college, that's when it stopped again, the physical, because my last night before going away to college, I remember this guy that I had grown up with sat next to me in church. And at the time he was like flirting or whatever. And um, so I said, well, you know, I'm going to college. So I'm obviously not starting anything, but he sat next to me at my last service. And I remember Cameron was so ticked that I sat next to a guy in church. He said that I disrespected him and it was a slap in the face that I'm about to leave. And he has to sit there and watch me while he preaches, sit with another guy. And he wouldn't even say goodbye to me when I was leaving. So you have to like, at the front of the church, there's two hallways on the side. And so to exit the church, you can go out the one hallway. And I remember passing him and I'm like, well, I'm flying out tomorrow. And I was going to stay with his parents for four days before moving into my dorm. So it was just very awkward. And he was like, good luck. And it was like super cold. And I just cried and cried. And then I didn't want to go because I thought, well, he's so mad at me. Meanwhile, you're living with your wife, but you're mad at me for being interested in another teenager. So like the double standard was insane. So we didn't talk for like the first two weeks that I was at college. And then it was just more like a friendship level of talking while I was there for that semester. But the physical really ended when I left. I mean, I know, I know vaguely because I, I mean, I became aware of your story when um, Stacey Shiflett posted that video. Um, yeah. And I remember being startled because I'd never seen an independent Baptist pastor ever address this issue. It's been a policy. It's been the MO and fundamentalism for pastors and churches and ministries to just gloss over and sweep under the rug things of absolute epic proportion. And the reason why I'm so fervent and so passionate about this this morning is because I relived all of those feelings of what it's like to be abused and the one that does the abuse is always the one that comes out on the other side, smell like a rose, go down the road to another church so he can do it again to somebody else. By the way, there's been two other people that have reached out to Sarah saying, I know you're telling the truth because he did things to me. One I have been able to corroborate and prove. The other one has remained anonymous as of today. Bottom line is, I've got enough evidence on my phone. I've got enough evidence that has been gathered from current and past staff of this church to corroborate her story. 
And the deacons and I arrived at a conclusion last Monday after spending an enormous amount of time in a conference call with her and her husband. We arrived at the conclusion unanimously, this woman's telling the truth. We believe her. Or, to use the proper legal terms, this victim's story is credible. And I communicated with North Valley and the leadership there, and I have been trying to get somebody out there to reach out to me to hear the story. And the story broke on Friday of last week, and I only received a phone call from the leadership of North Valley on Wednesday, 9.30 a.m. their time, 12.30 my time. The conference call, as far as I'm concerned, was only because I told Cameron Giovanelli Wednesday morning, I've got the evidence. I know it's true. You cannot fight this. They were trying to get him to fight it. He actually submitted his resignation on Monday at noon. I've got that on my phone as well. They did not accept his resignation until I threatened to go public with the facts because nobody out there ever asked for the facts. And I had him on my show and he talked about, you know, someone from the church told him what had happened. But at what point did someone else find out about this? And I'm just trying to connect the dots between like, you'd been gone for so long by the time that he found out. So what was kind of the bridge there between you being at college, you kind of for all intents and purposes, moving on at least location wise in your life um, versus like some people in the church starting to know this kind of like, you know, secret of what happened and then it eventually getting to Stacy. And if I just jumped over a huge chapter, you know, feel no, free no. To that, so when I was at college and we were talking kind of like on the friend level, um, I remember him calling me and saying that he needed to tell me something before I found out. And I was like, okay. And I remember being like at Golden State, you have the girls dorms and the guys dorm. And then there's like this breezeway over where like the, the clock and the fountain is. And I remember like pacing back and forth because I was like, what in the world is going on? Um, And him apologizing because his wife was now pregnant with her son. And he had told me before, like, you know, he was always telling me, you know, we, we don't have a sexual relationship, like what, everything you're going to want to tell an affair. Um, So I was surprised. I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, you told me that you don't even sleep with your wife. And now you're saying that she's pregnant. And I was distraught, like looking back, I'm like, you're so dumb, but I thought I loved this man. Like he's telling me he loves me and we're soulmates. And that one day down the road, if we're both ever single, like if our spouses die, we'll get together and like all these hopes and dreams that you can put into a little kid's head. And so I really did think that I loved him when I went out there and I was, I was upset. So I really didn't want to talk to him. And then I remember thinking in a twisted way that I was losing him, like losing him for good. Like at this point we had stopped, we had started, we had stopped because I went to college and I was like, this is it. Like, this is the end of that chapter and kind of feeling like lost. Um, So there was that, that kind of like threw me a little bit. And then I remember there was one teacher who I had forged a soul winning slip. I had said that I was soul or like, we were out knocking doors for bus ministry. A teacher or at Golden State or a yes, teacher? Okay. At Golden State. And I was really at the mall. <laughs> so she had found out because another teacher snitched on me. And she pulled me in her office, and her husband was best friends with Cameron. And like they all went to college together, they all graduated from Golden State together. 
And I remember her pulling me in and she was crying and she said, you know, I can't believe that you lied and you, which I did feel bad, you know, lying and getting caught. Um, but I guess in my mind, like, that's like the littlest thing going on in my life right now. Right. So whatever. Um, and she, she was just crying and she's like, you're supposed to be a pastor's wife and you know, you're supposed to have better integrity than this. And I remember crying in her office and just wanting to scream it out to her and tell her like, you have no idea who I really am or what I've really gone through. Like I wanted to tell her so bad. You have no idea who Cameron is and this is what's happened. And that was the first time that I, I guess because I was almost like cut off to him because Sarah was pregnant. Like maybe that's the first time that I wasn't looking through rose colored glasses and I wanted to tell her and I was like, no, I can't, I can't do it. So I left the college after that first event. Like I didn't even make it to the end of that. I think I left like two weeks early, which technically I had, too many demerits and I should have been kicked out anyway. So it was probably inevitable because, you know, not making your bed is like 20 demerits. Right. Um, so I came back and it was a mix of like, I'm losing him. What's going to happen. I shouldn't be here. I need to get back to him. So twisted. So I came back and then I actually ended up dating this guy from high school. He was a year younger than me. So he was still a senior So when I came back, I pretty much got right into a relationship with him. And I think because Sarah was pregnant and I was now dating this guy who I'd been best friends with my senior year, we just really kind of like grew apart and we would like talk occasionally. I would still play the piano for church, but it was back to like pastor congregant, if that's even possible, but lines weren't really being crossed anymore. And I think it's because I was starting to like figure out, I was like, well, I'm going to move on at this point because, you know, you're having another kid. This obviously is never going to actually work. I want to grow up and figure out who I am. So started dating that guy, dated him for five years. And I never told him about anything because he, he was a very, um, it wasn't a good relationship. It was a very toxic relationship Um, so I definitely never would have told him because I don't know how he would have reacted, probably tried to kill him. Um, cause they also were still going to Calvary. His dad was like the head usher. Um, and then the first person I told was my best friend at the time. She grew up in Calvary and, but she was at this time, not part of it anymore, And we kind of were more like on the normal side. I was starting to like slowly stop going because it was really hard for me. Like a couple years after ending, like things ending with Cameron, he's still preaching on marriage and purity and, you know, all these things. And I'm like, these people have no idea. And it just was really starting to eat at me. Um, So I just slowly like really started to back away from the church. And remember I was the first one out of my immediate family to stop going and my parents being like super upset, but I just, at this point I'm working in a bank in the world, like like a secular job, I have secular friends and I started drinking. Like I just was becoming more normal and like further and further away from IFB. So I told my best friend, um, And then the second person that I told was a girl that I worked with because she's the one who kind of like 
she was almost like an older sister in like the normal world that was like taking me under her wing. Like I would tell her like things about how I felt like I grew up in a cult and all these things. And she would, well, that's not, not normal. And I'm like, she's the first person I drank with and stuff. So I felt really close to her. Um, and she's like one of those people that just would never judge you for anything. So I felt safe telling her. Um, and then, then I told my younger sister like a year later and I remember breaking down and I was like, I have to tell mom and dad. And she's like, I don't, I don't know. That's a good idea. But at this point, like the more I was talking about it, the more I was like bursting at the seams. Like I had now opened this box where before it was, you could suppress it. Like I haven't told anybody, I can't tell anybody, but now I told this person and I told this person. So I remember being on the phone with my mom and she was upset about something at the church in Cameron. He had done something to like make them mad. I I don't even remember what it was. And I remember saying to her at this point, I'm already out of the church. They're still going. And I said, he's not who you think he is. And she's like, well, you know, we're starting to see that. And I was like, no, he's not who you think he is. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And so I remember taking like a deep breath and I told her Cameron was my first everything except for sex. And there was like this dead silence on the phone. And she was like, when, what, like all these, you know, questions or whatever. And I told her, I said, please don't tell dad until I get a chance to tell him. So then the next day I told her, I was like, well, can you give him a heads up? I'm on my way over. Cause at this point I'm now living with my next boyfriend who is now my husband. And I said, I'm going to come over and I'm going to talk to dad. And when we sat on the deck, and I told him, and my dad just crying and apologizing. And I don't, I don't blame my parents. I, there's things that I definitely want to do differently with my kids. I think there's a lot that they were blinded to at the time because of IFB. So many things are taboo subjects. And I think that, you know, creates a situation that's so much worse. Like, if I, I wonder, like, if I would have felt more comfortable talking to my parents about sexual things or, you know, even that conversation wasn't so taboo and hush hush and we don't really talk about it. Like, I never had the birds and the bees conversation with my parents. Like, I literally learned everything from Cameron. I didn't even like really didn't even know the differences in a guy and a girl, as sad as that is. So. Like, those are things that I'm going to want to do different with with my kids. Like, I want that open line of communication because while I don't blame them because they couldn't, I want to say that they couldn't have stopped it. I just wish that I would have had better communication with them and it wouldn't have been so closed off, almost more like a professional relationship than a comfort to talk to them. Um, So I remember telling him and he was super upset and apologizing to him, like, you know, it's not your fault, whatever. And he wanted to call Cameron. And I was like, no, you're not calling him. Like, this is like, I'll handle, I'm an adult now. I don't want this to come out because in my mind, the woman wears the scarlet letter. If that would have come out, I would have been this young girl who seduced the pastor and made him have an affair. And, you know, it all would have been placed on me because I right. think that so many 
you know, in IFB were like that. And I don't want to speak for all of them because I know not all of them are like that, but that the woman can be under the man, like the man of God. Yeah. So we're obviously going to take the pastor's side who everybody loves and he's just this great person. And he literally could sell you anything, convince you of anything. So I didn't want it to come out to the public. I was okay in that moment with my family knowing, like my parents, my grandparents didn't even know. Um, Cause to me, that was enough. Like I got it off my chest, but I just wasn't ready for more than that. So they all knew for a couple of years. Um, I told TJ because we had talked about like first kisses and stuff. And, you know, up to then I really had to lie and say that my first boyfriend out of high school, Carl was my first everything because obviously who would it have been with before? Um, So we, I told him everything, but the easy thing with TJ was he was not raised in church. So he, to him, all the, my whole life was like mind blowing to him. Like, well, what do you mean you have to wear this? What do you mean? You can't see this. You can't say this. Like, and having to explain like the grooming to him, but it also helped. It helped that he wasn't part of the Baptist faith because I didn't feel like I was going to be judged, but it also helped that he's a police officer. So he sees Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Um, Not necessarily. He'd never really seen it with, you know, a pastor and a child, but they obviously deal with sexual abuse and all that kind of investigations. So I felt comfortable telling him. So there was like, three, four years where that's all that knew was my two friends, my immediately immediate family and TJ. And then, you know, they were trying to convince me, you know, you should say something, but my biggest thing was I also didn't want to destroy my grandparents. Like that was Calvary was their whole world. My grandmother, you know, being the church secretary, my grandfather being the principal, the, a deacon, like they were just very involved. And I knew that it would break them or I thought it would. And I didn't want that to ruin my relationship with them either. Um, so I want to say that that's like what held me back the most. And at that time, you didn't have any kind of the thought process that, oh, he could do this to someone else wasn't in your head because no. it was no. just you. So you felt you felt like, oh, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason, like, what's the reason to bring it up? It's only affecting me right. and him. Yeah, that's right. that's a pretty interesting, yeah, that's just an interesting way to it's think It's almost like you're it. like, like you're, I don't, like, if I stay quiet, in my mind, it's, it's not going to happen to anybody else. So because he had convinced me he was in love with it. So I literally thought that this was like a relationship, not this is what he does. Yeah. Um, and if so you say something, know. you're just going to reap all of this vitriol from all the people who think you're just attacking yeah. the church. And, you know, you're the girl who left the church and now has this vendetta kind of. Right. Thing. Right. And I also, I didn't know a single person that had like spoke up about something like this. This to me still was a very like unspoken thing. Um, Now seeing all all of these men that we were taught to look up to, like some of my professors at college or pastors or, you know, preachers that came to different revivals and stuff. And like, you're hearing about, all of their double lives. And I'm like, this was so much bigger than my little mind could have 
ever comprehended at the time. Um, and so then at this point, he's now at Golden State. I was praying when God was leading us here a year ago that he would just begin to really work in my heart something that I could begin to teach the young men especially and young ladies. But for me, I was very, very mindful of the young men of God that are training at Golden State Baptist College. Well, as I was just going through scripture, I was getting, as preachers do, and as hopefully you do, I was just getting things from God and sermons and jotting notes down. And it wasn't until toward the end of the first semester of this last year that I was going into Second Peter, and I came to this phrase in verse number 10. Would you look at verse 10 with me? Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence... The word diligence means to be zealous or to be eager. It says, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, would you read those next four words with me, please? Ye shall never fall. Would you read them again one more time? Ye shall never fall. Those four words jumped out at me like never before. I had seen them before, but I had never really reviewed the verses prior like I did within this last year. I remember going through Christmas break and my poor wife, she's hearing this for probably the thousandth time. Because I began to look at the earlier verses I wanted to know as I looked at this verse, ye shall never fall. Well, the two words before that phrase are these things. I wanted to know what do these things mean? What are they? And if God gives us specific things to do in order to never fall, I want them in my life. You see, I'm tired of people falling. I could give you illustrations from my own personal family of men who have stood behind pulpits and preached that can no longer do so. I remember when I found out, I was so like angry, felt betrayed, I guess, that he left and went there. I was at a wedding and there was another ex-church member there because he was dating the groom's mom at the time. Weird, like my whole world's like kind of meshed in that moment. And he said, did you hear Giovanelli's leaving? And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, he's going back to Golden State. And I was like, and I hadn't talked to Cameron in a while. And I had been drinking at this wedding and I texted him and I was like, you're really moving? And he said, yeah. And I was like, like, are you not going to even, are you not going to say anything? I struggle in all areas of my life with closure. Like mm-hmm. closure is very hard for me. Like, I feel like I don't get a lot of closure Um, and I think it was that we really never, I never got closure with that. And so for him to be up and moving and I had no idea. And I just found out at a random person's wedding and he's like, I wanted to call you and meet up with you and tell you in person. I felt like you deserved that from me. You had no intentions of telling me you were going to leave. We don't talk anymore. Like, don't, you're trying to blow smoke. And So then the next day he called me, I was on my lunch break and I remember sitting outside of subway and crying. And I, so 
the guy that I dated right out of high school for those five years had died a couple years earlier in a motorcycle accident, like tragically. So another thing that was like a closure issue. And I remember crying and saying like, you weren't even going to tell me that you were leaving. Like I didn't get, like, I just don't get closure in, in my life. And he's like, do you feel like I'm betraying you? Cause I'm leaving. And I was like, I mean a little bit, even though, I've moved on. Like I'm happy and I'm dating someone in a good relationship and we don't even talk anymore except for the occasional, like it's your birthday coming up or whatever. And so he said, I promise I'll always love you. And so I remember just crying and we ended up hanging up. And I guess that was like what he was trying to give me as closure. Like I didn't actually use you for my own agenda. I really did love you like still manipulation. Cause I feel like that's, that's still to me part of grooming, like yeah. still trying to like keep that emotional tie. Like I, I, so I wouldn't look at it non emotionally. I don't know. Um, so, and then after that we would, we started talking again, like once he was out there talking again through Facebook messenger, he would tell me that he was thinking about me or, He was, but he started wording things like super um, guarded almost and underlying things, like things that I would know what he's saying. So he would say something to the effect, and I have screenshots, I'd have to pull them up, something to the effect of like really missing Marilyn today and all of my favorite memories with a wink. And I'm like, I know exactly what you're saying. Like it was still trying to keep me tied And, or he knew that I love birthdays, like birthdays are my thing. And I celebrate for like a whole month. And so he would text me on September 1st, it's your birthday month, 27 days to your birthday. Oh, you're going to be 28 on the 28th. Like a countdown. He would text me at like one in the morning. Well, it's, it's your birthday, your time, or it's Christmas, your time. And I wanted to be the first to wish you like, so he was always still keeping ties. Um, and then Once I had my son, I, I feel like that's when another switch flipped in me and I started looking at him. Like if someone did this to him, like I was now at the age that Cameron was when he did this. And I'm like, I'm an adult. I can think like an adult. I'm not looking at a teenager and being sexually aroused. Like you should have never, like I was now looking at life through the age his he was and like how he should have looked at it. And I think that's when it clicked, like how disgusting and wrong it was. Right. Like the thought of being 28 and sexually attracted to a 16 year old grosses me out. Like I just don't get it. Yeah. And I think between having Easton and looking at him and thinking I would do anything in my power to protect, like I, I would, I would do anything in my power to protect my kid and something happening to him. And, and also with the age thing, and I just started getting more and more sick about it and like really starting to struggle with keeping quiet. And then I was talking to TJ one day and I was like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to say something. And I, at the time, like, who do I talk to? And I didn't know pastor Shiflet. I hadn't been there since no. he was the pastor. Didn't know him at the time. So I wanted nothing to do with that church. To me, even still walking in that church, I see memories everywhere. And even though 
they're always very welcoming and loving on me. And they have backed me this whole time. It is still so hard to walk in that building. And a lot of it is, you know, renovated and stuff, but I still not like, you know, watching Pastor Shiflet preach. And I'm like, oh, well, right behind there was my first kiss. Like I can't concentrate one in there. Um, so I did want to talk to him. I didn't know who to talk to. And I was like, I think I'm going to put it out on Facebook. So I told my immediate family, like, heads up. I'm, I'm going to say something. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. Like I just had to type it up and hit enter. And so I remember my mom saying, please talk to your grandparents first. And I was like, well, they definitely deserve that. So I called my grandmother and she didn't answer. She was teaching at the school and she called me back like five minutes later. And I said, I need to tell you something before the whole world finds out. And I told her like the same way that I told my mom, And she was like, you're kidding. And it was almost like an immediate anger. Not at me, just like at the situation, like she had been blindsided. And she said, can you give me five minutes? And I was like, okay, five minutes. And then I'm posting. And in my mind, I thought, well, she's going to go find my grandfather, who's the principal. Like She's got to go find Tam so then I can talk to him. And my phone rings. And it was Pastor Shiflet. Well, first, my grandmother says, hey, hang on a second. Puts me on speakerphone. And it was Pastor Shiflet. And I remember being so angry because I don't know this man. I'm about to come forward with the biggest thing that's happened to me that I've been hiding for 11 years. And you're throwing me on the phone with this man. Like, I understand you're still very much involved in this church, but I'm coming forward about something that happened at that church. I don't want to talk to him. And I was, I was just so mad. And, um, so he said, you know, your grandfather or your grandparents just told me what happened. And he said, I, I understand that you're going to put this out on Facebook. And I said, I am. And he said, I'm going to ask that you don't do that. And I was like, well, I'm doing it. Like, sorry. And in my mind, that's what I was thinking. And I, but I was letting him like, tell me what, what your thoughts are. So I was like, okay. And he said, let me try and get something to the effect of like, let me try and get out in front of this. Like, this is my church. These are my people. This is going to hurt a lot of people. Let me call pastor Treber and try and get out in front of this. My first thought was I went to golden state. I went to North Valley. I know what's been covered up there. Like at this point, I know, you know, mm. about all the other men that Treber's covered for. Mm. So I was like, absolutely not. Like, so I, I told him, okay. And in that moment, I knew that I was lying to him, but I, I didn't know him. I thought he's going to just try and hush this and sweep it under the rug. Like all the other ones I had heard of did. And he had said something to the effect of come meet with me before we go public, come meet with me and write down in a book, everything that happened. And if you, I don't want to mess up his words, but it was something to the effect of if you can convince me it happened, I'll be your biggest supporter. Now knowing him, I know he didn't mean it how I took it, but as this being the first Baptist person I am telling for you to tell me if you convince me it happened when really it's my word against Cameron, nobody was up in that room when things are happening. Nobody is at the grave site or a graveyard with us when things are like, these are just one-on-one things. I didn't record these things. I don't have that phone anymore. And so that hurt. Like those choice of words, 
And I'm sure we've all learned since like how to word things and just, you know, tiptoe a little more. And he apologized once he found out that that really upset me, but I just felt like it was almost like a slap in the face. Like, I don't have to convince you of anything, sir. Like, I don't know who you are. This is my story. And I'm finally just going to say something. So I ended up agreeing like, okay, I'm not going to post it. We hung up. Um, and I said that I would meet with him like that. It was going to be like the next week or something. Cause we were about to go away to Washington DC for four days for police week. Um, and as soon as I hung up the phone, I hit enter because I knew in that moment, I felt my strongest. I had already typed it up and I just, I needed to get it out there. So I hit enter and I walked out of my office and I shut the door and I didn't go back in there. Like I didn't want to log on to Facebook. I don't want to see what's going on. So it was like a couple hours. And then I finally got back on and saw like it had already been shared like crazy once people were seeing it. And I know that I now see what Shiflet was trying to do, but I still think I'd made the right move because if it wouldn't have gone on Facebook and it wouldn't have been so public, maybe it would have been hidden a little bit more. Like yeah. who knows what Trevor would have told Pastor Shiflet <coughs> to try and keep him quiet and yeah. if that would have worked. So I'm glad at that moment that I went public and I am very grateful for the whole Shiflet family. Like once that was like talked out, um, they really did become some of my biggest advocates. So it was, it was definitely a misunderstanding, but I think going forward with people talking to victims, please don't use those words. Don't ever tell someone if you convince me or if you can prove to me, like those just are very, I hate to say the word triggering, but they are very triggering words because right. I don't owe anybody anything. Right. But so that's kind of yeah. how it came out. Yeah. So what was the, what was kind of the, I guess, fallout from that post. I mean, obviously the story spread at least to California because that's where I was. And, um, you know, it, it really, um, I mean, it, it was everywhere. Um, and I mean, I, I can't imagine at the time you expect it to go as big as it did. I, I assume you thought, Oh, a couple friends or, you know, family from everyone from the church will be shocked. But, right. you know, what was kind of, did, did you, how did you feel knowing like it was like almost a, not almost, it was a national story, like basically right after posting? Um, it was terrifying because I feel like, I don't know if it's where, you know, I grew up or if it was growing up Baptist, I feel like your bubble and your world is so small and it's eye opened to see like the world is so much bigger than we, so like me hitting post, I did not think that it was going to blow up the way it did. I thought Golden State's going to find out. They need to find out. They need to fire him. Like in my mind, I just wanted him out of the ministry and out of a position of power to do this again, because now being a mom and I'm looking at my innocence on, I'm like, he could totally, you know, anybody could totally do that to any other kid. Um, and you're now working in a college. I was still a minor when I went to college. So you're still around minors. And if you got away with it, then you surely can get away with it. Now you're in a bigger place, a bigger position of power, like, and they, they feed off of that. So it definitely was eye opening to see, you know, the, 
the videos coming out and the news articles and like my emails blowing up from the local news stations. And I'm like, holy crap, did not expect this to happen. And I was just almost like clammed up because while I wanted it out, I didn't realize what out was until it was out. Um, I remember being terrified that the church was going to be upset with me, which there was some backlash. There was, um, there was one church member actually that told me that I was going to go to hell because of what I said about the man of God. And I was like, you know, we're all going to have to answer for our sins, but you know, he's going to have to answer just as much as I have, as I will. And Cameron knows what happened and I know what happened and God knows what happened. And I don't, again, I don't have to prove anything to you. No. So I pretty much was like, and you know, started blocking every, like all the nasty people. I remember I was getting, while I was at police week, I was getting horrible um, messages on Twitter from burner accounts, you know, saying that I was a whore and that I'm such a liar and Cameron would never look at someone who wore pants. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I wasn't wearing pants at the time. I was wearing the school uniform that he picked out. Um, and there was, while it was like a shock to everybody and there was a lot of, um, support, there was also so much hate in the beginning, but he was so loved. He's the head Mm -hmm. of golden state bat. Like he's, you know, little Treber and I, they all just started like, and so that, that was hard because I'm already, I just, I cried most of those days in DC because my emotions were just all over. There was like a weight that was lifted immediately, but then at the same time I'm now was not ready for this hate that was being thrown my way. Right. Um, yeah, like I said, this, this is what kind of prompted the start of preacher boys was this story. And it was specifically seeing the tweets, um, and the people raising funds for Cameron. And it was the first time that I could really point my finger at a public cover up, like at, at a, it was the first time. Cause you know, I've shared my story. Like, you know, I, I saw behind the scenes cover-ups and stuff when I was in high school and, and things like that. And I, I researched these things, but it was so blatant and it was, you know, right. pastor sending on church letterhead, like to raise money to pay for Cameron's legal fees. And, and that was the one that pushed me to like, that's why I did the video on my car and like was just pissed right. and, and just got on and recorded. And, um, you know, but, yeah, all all of that happening was was so crazy. And then on top of that, like again, going back to the audacity, like you know, Cameron coming out and publicly, you know, accusing you of lying, and then right. his, you know, his wife, you know, which I guess I'm curious about that. Is I know your I know his wife didn't know at the time, but. Mm-hmm when you see that video of them standing there and he's saying, you know, I'm innocent, she's lying and she's nodding that, you know, our marriage is great. Hello folks. Obviously I'm Cameron Giovanelli. It's my wife, Sarah. And I just wanted to come to you by way of this video. Number one, to say that the allegations made against me are not true. They're false. We still trust him. We're still winning. We sit in church. We absolutely love church. I mean, we're still amening. We're still smiling. Our marriage is good, 
and we're just excited to see what God is doing. Our kids are doing fine. And can I tell you, the cause of Christ, it's wonderful. In When you watch that, do you feel sorry for her that she didn't believe it? Do you think at that time she knew and was just standing by? Like, what do you, what did you feel when you saw her kind of attacking you? Like, or did you ever talk to her separately than that? Or. So when I first went public and made that post, I messaged her on Instagram because we were still friends on Instagram. And I said, I'm so sorry that this is how you had to find out. Um, so sorry for what happened. Like my heart breaks for you guys. I wish that, you know, there was more that I could say than I'm sorry. And I said, you know, I would love to talk to you and, you know, tell you more and tell you everything that happened. And I said something in there about like on my son, like this happened. I'm not lying. I don't want you to like for a second think that I'm lying. I would never make something like this up. And I immediately got blocked. And that was the Mm -hmm. first thing that bothered me. Like you didn't even take time to ask a single question to see if like you watched me grow up from 13 years old and you, you didn't even care to ask a single question. Like I can tell you that if anybody accused my husband of something, I'm going to get to the bottom of it before the investigators do, because (laughs) I'm telling like it just, there's going to be a fire lit under my butt and I'm going to go like find out all the details and you know, debunk something, either he's lying or she's lying. And I know I get, you know, it's my word against his. So it went from being heartbroken for her that her whole world was crashing down around her to not feeling sorry for her because first of all, to block me immediately when I'm reaching out to you, like, please talk to me. I will, I'll call you like privately reaching out to you. You're actively trying not to hurt her. Yeah. With the information. And then um, the second time that I tried, tried reaching out to her, I sent her an email to her email address when they went to Neil's Greg Neil's church. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when the next morning Cameron released one of those awful blogs about me, like I guess in retaliation because I tried reaching out to Sarah again And then in the video, like, yes, there was like the part of me that was heartbroken for her in the aspect of like that she feels stuck because I truly think she has nowhere to go. Like her, she watched her mom struggle being a single mom. And so she grew up seeing that. And I know she wants different for her kids. So I get that. And my heart was broken at first, but then I felt like I don't know if she knows the truth or, and she's just backing him to keep their lifestyle and back her husband, like till death do us part. You know, I'm taking those vows seriously and I'm going to back you. If you're going to say publicly, you didn't do it. I'm going to back you wholeheartedly, but then to turn so evil and say some of the things that she did, even in that blog post that she posted, I was like, you're not the person like I, she, their daughter was then the age I was when Cameron started abusing me. So how did, and I even put that in the email, like Madeline is the age that I was. Mm. So how do you not make some kind of connection? Like I, I would be devastated if this happened to my daughter. Um, so I think it went from heartbroken to very angry at her for making me the bad guy instead of even taking one second to try and, 
And then to even say in the, in the blog, you know, I would have talked to you privately. I reached out to you twice privately before this and you blocked me both times. Like you're not allowing, I'm trying, I'm trying to tell you everything. And I knew that there was things like if I could get to her the information about like the earrings, maybe she would remember. I remember him saying that, saying that he took those earrings back and got me a necklace. And I even told her exactly what she, the exact necklace that she got for Valentine's day. Cause I knew it. Like maybe if I get her some of these things, she'll look back and be like, she's telling the truth. Like, I remember that. Like, how would I know that? How would I know private conversations between you and your husband? Um, but it was, it was just devastated that I didn't even get that chance to tell her those things. So it's hard to feel sorry for someone or compassion towards someone that's choosing that life now. Like the inner, like the info was handed to you and you're purposely looking the other way. So it's frustrating. Yeah. The, yeah the, uh, and just to further just kind of dive into this too. I mean, you didn't receive any kind of communication from Treber, from Golden State, from you didn't receive any kind of questioning to ask like, hey, you just shared this. You know, what can we do with this information? It was basically the only person mm-hmm. was, I mean, outside of family was Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that that that's something that he said on on our episode together, you know. And I've told I've told um, Stacy this, and he, I'm sure he feels the same way. Like, there's a lot of things with Stacy. Like, I'm very very different on pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. um, and, but the, it's, you know, there's certain things with this topic. Like, like one of the things he said that I really agreed with was, um, you know, he was a victim of circumstances and like finding this out about the church. Treber was a victim of circumstances to find out that the president of his college was this, but it's what you do with that information that determines, you know, whether you're complicit or not. And, you know, I think that's something so important to point out here is like, and you just hit on this with, with Sarah is, you know, there comes a point where you have the information and all of the pastors who were supporting on Twitter and raising funds had the information, but even, even when he pled guilty, there were still people who were saying, you know, Bob Gray senior said, you know, most, most confessions are part of a plea deal, you know? And yeah, yeah, it's just shocking to me. Um, No, I I mean, I'm not shocked about the gray thing. I I spoke with, um, I spoke with Bob Gray when I started the podcast and tried to talk to him for like, talk to him for an hour and a half. And uh, you know, he made a lot of statements um, that just, it's just so clear to me how evil some of these guys are. And like Bob Gray senior is one of the people I'm comfortable saying he's an evil person. And, um, I just remember like he was saying like the me too movements, the worst thing that's happened in American history. I was like, not, not slavery, <laughs> not right. this, you know, like it's, it's this, it's just crazy to me. And it is, you know, I just look at this situation. I look at all the, obviously, I mean, thousands of people have come out to support you, but it's shocking to me that there's not just one or two people who have been so full of vitriol and anger and hatred. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's why I just can't, when people say, I know I'm getting on a rant here, but, but when people say, you know, why didn't so-and-so come forward? People are seeing how the church responds to this stuff yeah, and, and not even just the church. People see how the culture at large responds to this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but but anyway, so so back to this. I mean, we can dive in. I mean, I feel like the legal side was pretty well documented. I mean, that's the yeah. part everyone did see. But um, can you just talk a little bit about you know once he confessed and you know once you were able to you know stand in court and read your victim impact statement? That seems like if there is a closure moment, that seems like it. Um, can you talk about the emotion of that experience about him finally owning up publicly to what he did and um, your ability to stand up and really say what had happened in that kind of forum? So this one's kind of tough for me because I never want to come across ungrateful. I know that there are so many survivors that never get to see their day in court. And that's heartbreaking. So I'm so grateful that I did get that. Um, But I think where it's tricky for me, I should be ecstatic that he pled guilty. But knowing Cameron the way I do, I feel like that was just a play for him. Like he knew what he was facing. Like he was facing like what, 80 years or something, if it all added up. And he knew all the witnesses that we had or like people that could like vouch for different timelines and stuff. And I think it was like him trying to like weasel out. Well, if I just plead guilty, um, you know, I won't, I won't get as, as much, which is the part that sucks about a plea deal. It's like, okay, well we have to compromise. Like, yeah, you're going to admit it. Fine. Then we'll give you a lighter sentence, which is hard because to go from 80 years to 90 days, that part, I don't feel like justice was, was, was served. But then on the other aspect, how long would have been enough? Like, would I, you know, I mean, look at Victor getting, I mean, he's about to get released. Like, that's just that I know, I know Rachel and I know like that there's no closure there. Like that's not enough yeah. time, but how much is enough time? Like yeah. that's when is it justice? Like, yeah. So very grateful that I got to see my day in court. I think the biggest help for me and the closest that I got to closure and then I'll probably ever get to closure was reading my victim impact statement because I was able to finally tell him, this is how you made me feel. This is what you did to me. And like, you no longer have this control that you've had over me for all of these years. And I feel like that was me like, breaking those chains off. And like, I know we still have this other legal side that we still have to face. And then after that, I never have to see him again and I can just move on with the rest of my life. But that was, this was the biggest part. I truly believe like the other legal part isn't about him abusing me. Like this isn't suing him because he abused me. This is a completely different situation where it's what he did with me coming forward. Like you cannot just destroy a person when they're finally finding their voice. I understand that you probably feel like I betrayed you because I didn't keep your secret, but to then try and destroy me even more. Like, did you not do enough damage when I was a kid? Like man up, own up and move on. Yeah. And just for people listening, just for people listening who aren't familiar with what you're talking about, there's a, there's a new lawsuit from you against uh, Cameron, Sarah, and Emmanuel Baptist Church, which mm-hmm. is where um, even after he was 
already being investigated for this. He was hired on staff. Um, and it's a defamation lawsuit because of all of the crazy things. And I, I looked at the lawsuit and thought good for her, but I also thought you could stamp another, you know, 30, 40, 50 names on there and they could rest comfortably. Um, but anyway, yeah, for those that don't know, um, that's the second legal um, issue that's being referred to. And that like, I, I know there's going to be people that twist that and say, you know, did you not get enough? He served his jail time, but that's, it's just a completely, and I won't get into it because it's open, but just a completely different situation. That has nothing to do with the abuse that has to have, that has to do with what's happened since 2018. Um, so I do think that being able to confront him and him not being allowed to talk back to me was very helpful. Like he had to stand there and listen. And he actually was given the opportunity if he wanted to apologize to me and he declined. So that's why I don't think that there's actually any remorse because after I read my statement, the judge looked at him and he's like, is there anything that you would like to say back to the court out loud for yourself, anything? And he said, no. So if you were truly repentant or admitting what you did could you not have even said i'm sorry like two words nothing so and i never looked i had the state's attorney stand next to me so that way i couldn't see him on the other side because i knew that if i like actually looked at him i probably would like freeze i just needed to be zone and i just read it because i typed it all out and people in the courtroom said that he just face forward stone cold face never looked my way So I don't think, I think that's where I'm not going to get the closure. Like he's never going to like truly apologize for what he did. And he may not even fully understand like the severity of like the toll that his actions took on me. Like those multiple years that really you're trying to find yourself and you're so lost in like, who am I supposed to be? I'm kind of like half in the world, half out. Like I have this IFB world and then I have, you know, my other friends and then I go to a Christian college and then I come home and I'm working in the world. Like it just, it really molded who I was going to be. And I don't think he's ever going to understand that. Right. So, I mean, obviously there's this lawsuit, which we won't go into just because it is open. Um, But I mean, what, I guess, where are you at now? I mean, as far as, I know, I know with things like this, there isn't that closure. I mean, there's never be a perfect, you know, undo button or, or something that makes it better. But um, I guess what's your, what's your goal now? I mean, is it, do you feel yourself, you know, I know you speak about this sometimes and you're, you, you will post about it. Um, Do you see yourself in kind of an advocacy role? Do you, do you, are you kind of at a point now where you want to, you know, in a lot of ways, set it behind you? Like, like what's your, what's your goals over the next couple of years, as far as, you know, moving past this event, Um, obviously not moving past the emotional trauma, but the, the actual event itself. So I feel like while everything, while that had, that part has ended in January. And then now with this, I feel like I'm kind of almost like in this limbo where my emotions on a day-to-day basis about everything are still a roller coaster. Like I don't feel like I'm quite at 
a sturdy or grounded level to where I can like truly help other people. Like my heart is there. Like I want to, and I, I receive messages all the time. I'm about to come out about my story. Um, I heard about yours. You don't know me like, and I'll talk to them privately, but as far as like going out and being a face, that's eventually where I want to get. Cause I think that can bring so much healing, like Rachel Peach's goals and joy. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I, I suppressed so much for so many years. I feel like I'm trying to process so much still. I'm not, I, and I know I'll never be fully healed from what happened, but I just feel like it's almost like I'm trying to breathe in a little bit of fresh air. Like I, I spoke up, I got that part of court out of the way and like just trying to like soak up happy things and without that being suppressed and like just that dirty feeling, like taking these moments with my kids and stuff. And I know that's kind of selfish, but I also feel like I can be selfish here for Mm -hmm. a second and just like concentrate on me. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to help other victims. Like I want to see like so much change. Like I want to see victims come forward, but I, at the same time, and I tell everybody that, that reaches out to me, you don't have to speak up. Like if that's not going to help you, like do what's going to help you. So if it's a family member that, you know, is past one, one of them, that was a family member that passed away and they're like, you know, if I say something like they're already gone, I can't get justice. And I was like, you got to do what's good for you. If, if you think that that's going to make your situation worse, then by all means, like, I mean, to seek out therapy or counseling or whatever to work through those emotions, but the answer isn't going to be speaking up for everyone. Like that's not going to bring healing to everyone. Every situation is so different. And even all the survivors that I'm now friends with, and like, it's a whole community. It's like two other victims out there. There is a whole community that literally just rallies around you as soon as you reach out to any of us. Um, so I'll always be there to help people. Like I would never turn someone away, but I think like, that's definitely my goal at some point. But I think in this moment, I'm still trying to process me and what happened and how I'm going to do different for my kids and like trying to learn how to parent different than I parented and those kind of things. Yeah. Well, just two more questions really quick, but I, I'm curious how have, um, and I'm hoping they have, but I'm how for people who are listening, who are maybe would find themselves in TJ's position, you know, or in a family member's position, like your grandparents or your parents for, for, for those of us who would know someone who is a survivor of abuse of any form, what's the best way for us to be an ally or to encourage or to, you know, especially for those who it's a spouse or someone like that, you know, what's the most helpful thing that you've seen other people do when they try to, you know, encourage you while you're dealing with this roller coaster of emotions and legal issues and all these different things. Um, if there's like one word I, that comes to mind first is just listen, because if a victim has found their voice, they're ready to be heard. So listen with open ears, non-judgmental. We feel dirty and guilty and all of the emotions already. 
And obviously people that love you aren't going to most of the time aren't going to make you feel worse about it. Um, but I also know that there are some that talk to family who might still be very IFB that are, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it. So I would just say like, if a victim comes to you or like your spouse or something is just always be a listening ear. Like I have told TJ, I haven't told him everything, but I have told him more than most and he's never judged and he's listened. And it's things that are just as uncomfortable for him to listen to as it is for me to say out loud. But sometimes I just have to talk about it and like preparing for tonight. I told him like how nervous I was because I feel like once you get into that mindset and like it takes you back, but I know that every single time that I talk about it, I feel a little bit better. Like I feel like Mm. a little, like more weight is being lifted off of me. So I think that's, what's been most helpful is just being able to finally have open communication and open conversations with people and then rallying together, like ask questions, like ask whoever the victim is, what do you want to do? Don't push them to go speak up. Don't push them to do whatever and don't take their voice away from them. So whatever helps them, I, I just think if they're coming to you and they're talking to you, then they're ready to be heard. And that's what we need to do is just let them talk and let them lead where they want to take it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then just one last question, cause I, I asked this of most all my guests, but I'm just curious, you, you, I mean, you've obviously got to see, um, you know, people from that, the IFB community that have tried to help and there's been congregants and, you know, there's, I know there's pastors, even in my group that, you know, they wouldn't want to be named on the show, but I think they definitely feel strongly about this stuff not happening. But, um, you know, I think you've already mentioned in passing kind of some of the ways that the culture of the IFB can lend itself to abusive situations. And, you know, as a survivor, how do you, do you think that there's hope for reform of the IFB movement where we can see this kind of antagonistic attitude toward female victims of abuse and this kind of over, you know, this worship kind of mentality toward, Mm -hmm. you know, the man of God. Um, Do you think there's hope for change in the movement? And if, if you could see change, what, what would you like to see changed within that, within that world? I, I think there's some areas where a lot needs to change. I do think that some of them are still so stuck in that, you know, the woman is below the man and we're always going to take the man's side and it's the woman's fault. And I do think that's a lot of the reason why so many stay quiet, but I, I think if there's going to be hope for, um, for, you know, the, really any faith, but this specifically, cause that's what it ha- where it happened for me. I do think it's going to take more preachers like pastor Shiplett, just cause that's who I really was, you know, working with, with this that aren't afraid to go against the norm. Like what's become the norm. And what I don't understand is like, there's nowhere in the Bible that I've ever seen that says the man is better than the woman. Like there it's twisted so much. Like you're not loved any more than I am. Like we're all loved equally. And I don't understand why we don't even give the women 
or children sometimes a voice or an opportunity to speak. That was one of the things that bothered me so much about Pastor Treber is that I was part of your church. I worked in your ministries. I went to your college. Like I financially helped you. Like I, you know, worked a bus through all these things. Why am I less important than Cameron? Why did you not even ask me? Why did you not even call me and try to get my story? So I think that's, if there's going to be change, it needs to start with that and more checks and balances, more um, being held accountable for stuff. Like I think that there should be video cameras and security system. Like there's just should be be so many things to prevent this from happening. Even if we now not being part of IFB never agree with their faith, like their way of thinking or their faith, I think we still can protect people in there so that this isn't like you can believe whatever you want to each their own, but be safe doing it. Like I should not have to be scared to go to church or send my kid to a Sunday school class or to the nursery. So I don't, I don't ever have to agree with IFB again, but I just want it to be a safe place. Women to be treated better, like in the ones that still treat them below. Um, I don't know if that really answers the question. I do think, I do think there's hope. I think it's just going to take more people realizing this is 2020. We can all speak up for ourselves and it's time that we start protecting people instead of, whatever our agenda is. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I was, I was curious to get your perspective on that. And I haven't asked that question of a guest in a little while, but I thought it would be a good, a good one to end on. But um, I, I appreciate you taking time. I know it's uh, I know it's a little bit late where you're at. Um, yeah. And I, I appreciate you taking time and uh, sitting down and having this conversation. I know it's not easy and these are always hard conversations to start and finish. Um, but I, I really appreciate you sharing so openly. And I know it's going to help a lot of people. I say that every episode, but I know every time that there's a different story, it resonates with, you know, somebody. Right. So I thank you so much for coming on. And I just want to say thanks for having this podcast. Cause I feel like talking to survivors behind the scenes, this has been a safe space for mm. so many who have said that they felt comfortable being here and like that their voice was actually going to be heard and be used for good, not to trash talk or, you know, no. try and end. I feel like that's not what it is. It's trying to make a change. So we on this end are very grateful for that. that I mean, that means a ton. I mean, that's, that's everything. Um, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. That's been, that's been the goal from day one and it's encouraging to know that that's, <laughs> that that's received on that end. So, but, uh, thank you so much. And, and definitely like I'll, I'll link out to some of the stuff we talked about so people can read, um, a little bit more if they, if they want to, but, um, but yeah, I appreciate you coming on and I'll, uh, I'll let you go for tonight so you can, uh, goodness. It's like what time there? Midnight. (laughs) Uh, yeah. 1210. (laughs) So, uh, but anyway, but thank you so much for coming on and for, for sharing so openly and uh, look forward to look forward to sharing this one. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on preacher boys
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.